Would you turn in uh, your Bibles with me to the book of Matthew chapter 21? If you don't have a Bible, there are Bibles on the back table. If you're using a device, we, uh, we preach from, at Substance, the English Standard Version, so the ESV. Um, years ago, uh, I, I studied film in college and uh, cin- cinematography, uh, that, that's, that's the, the fancy word. Uh, I was encouraged during my time um, at school to, to watch this TV show called Arrested Development. Has anybody heard of this? Okay, yeah, okay, it got claps. Okay, all right. I don't necessarily endorse it, but, you know, like, um, I, was, I was encouraged to watch this show because of, of its trademark style of screenwriting. It's, it's really a, a very deep and interwoven plot. It's, it's comedy, but it's, it's, it's very interwoven. Anyways, um, in the first episode of Arrested Development, the main character, uh, Michael Bluth is his name. He's at a party being held on his parents' yacht in the California Bay, And for years, he has worked faithfully as an employee for his dad. And his dad has promised him that one day he's going to give Michael uh, the company. And and, and now at this party um, on his parents' yacht, Michael is convinced that that day has finally arrived. So the main character, he's in a great mood. He's dancing with everybody. He's conversing. The moment comes when his dad wants to make a big announcement the music stops. Can you just envision it with me? The crowd gathers in. He starts shuffling through his cue cards to make an acceptance speech, but then the unthinkable and unexpected happens. His dad passes the company off to Michael's mother, not Michael. And it's this moment where we can laugh a little bit. You would, you, you would if you were watching it. It's a comedy. It's this big, gigantic dismay, uh, this exhale, where Michael's expectations are just crushed. His, his respect for and his allegiance to his dad is also crushed. And in the moment that I'm watching this, and if you ever were to see it, it's, you, you can relate. There, there is a relatability to this moment where Michael had gotten up these expectations and they were sorely, uh, underwhelmingly unmet. And in some ways, I, I, I want you to hang on to this illustration, if you will, from Arrested Development. Hang on to this scene for a moment because in many ways, this is actually what we see in the passage we're going to look at this morning. It's Palm Sunday, as I've mentioned. It's the day when Christians celebrate and remember Jesus's entry into Jerusalem. Crowds come out from Jerusalem. They're greeting him with the waving of palm branches. Palm Sunday marked the first day of Jesus's last week on earth. So he would go from Palm Sunday to then it would be uh, Holy Thursday or Maundy Thursday. His last supper would take place there. Then it would be uh, his crucifixion on Good Friday. He was laid quiet in the tomb on Saturday. And then, I, you know, spoiler alert, uh, he rose to life on Easter Sunday, which we are going to gather and celebrate that as well. But, but today being Palm Sunday... And we've got our decoration, you know, did you notice, right? Everything ties in. Uh, With it being Palm Sunday, we're going to be looking at Jesus's triumphal entry, which is recorded in Matthew 21, verses 1 through 11. Before I read, I want to take a second, and we need to get oriented quickly. We've been in the book of Esther 
We've been in mid-fourth century BC in Persia. Now we need to fast forward 500 years. We're in the year AD 33. Let's get oriented into Jerusalem, right? So Jerusalem is, is the holy city of the Jews. And throughout history, if you know Jewish history, uh, there are many reasons we don't have time to dig into, but, but Jerusalem has been, has been conquered. Uh, the Jews have been deported and exiled multiple times. There's, there's been foreign governors and foreign powers um, just constantly invading and, and, and over, overriding and, 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 and casting their shadow over the city of Jerusalem. It was in 587 BC, we looked at this in the book of Esther, that um, Jerusalem was conquered by the Babylonian Empire, King Nebuchadnezzar. And Jews were deported. And then Babylon fell to the Persian Empire of King Cyrus. And then many of the Jews returned to Jerusalem, though it would never be the same. And Persia would soon fall to the Greek Empire, if you know your history of Alexander the Great. And then later, uh, the Greeks would fall to Rome and the Roman Empire of Caesar Augustus. But here's what we need to, this is the, the crux of what I want us to know about Jerusalem. Through all of these exchanges of empires, they would have really never been their own entity they would have been ruled and heavily governed and overlorded by these foreign nations. Many of the Jews would be at home in Jerusalem, but they would not be free. They'd be essentially exiles in their own city, in their own country, mistreated, oppressed, undersupported, overtaxed. So just to put this in reference, imagine with me, though, nightmarish as it sounds if Worcester were to be conquered by North Korea, right? It's extreme. But, you know, imagine, you know, they bring in their governors and their guards, all the customs and the currency. We might be free, you and I, as Wisterians, to go to, you know, Spoon Market or to the YMCA. We might be free to do so, but everything would be different, right? We'd be constantly watched, We'd be constantly reminded that Worcester really no longer belongs to us and we are all under the thumb of a foreign empire. This is the state of affairs in Jerusalem in Matthew 21. Rome is the reigning superpower. Caesar Augustus is calling the shots through a Jewish puppet king named Herod. He's a traitor. Things are bad in Jerusalem. The, the, the faith of the Jews, God's people, is eroding. The religious leaders are compromised. The Pharisees, the Sadducees, they're more interested in, in, in maintaining their own power and privilege than they are serving and, and, and you know, pastoring, if you will, the people of Israel through this time. But there are some, there are some Jews, there's always been a remnant, trying to stay true to the scriptures, trying to wait for God's Messiah, the promised rescuer, the promised king who will rise up to deliver the Jews from their enemies. And so the immediate context of our passage is that many of these hopeful Jews, and there are even Gentiles mixed in, it's the, it's the week of Passover. There was probably roughly a million or so people in the city of Jerusalem they hear that Jesus is approaching with his disciples, right? 
Word has spread. He has just, Jesus, raised Lazarus from the grave and he's healed two blind men of blindness and expectations are high as tensions are, are you know, they're being suppressed by Rome and this, and this Jesus is making his way to Jerusalem during the Passover. Do you feel it? Do you, you gotta get a, a little bit of a, a tingle in your palm. The expectations are high as we jump into this passage. Would you follow along as I read Matthew chapter 21, starting in verse one. Now they, that is Jesus and his disciples, now they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives. And then Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, go into the village in front of you and immediately you'll find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, the Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut palm branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up saying, who is this? And the crowd said, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Would you pray with me? Jesus, as people who see the whole picture of what's going on in this scene, because we know the whole story, we're so thankful we're so thankful, Jesus, for your obedience in riding into Jerusalem. We're about to look at this now. Holy Spirit, give us grace to see Jesus in this passage, to be conformed to Jesus uh, because of the truths of this passage. We ask these things all in the name of Jesus. Amen. So when we consider Jesus' triumphal entry, along with the rest of the events of the Passion Week, of Holy Week, we're reminded that God will always accomplish all that he has said he will accomplish, though often not in the way we expect. I wanna look at that idea, and for the remainder of our time, those are gonna be my two points. If you're, a, if you're a note taker, point number one will be this. God will accomplish all that he has said he will accomplish. And number two, though often not in the way we expect. Let's look at point number one. We see in, in verses one through three, as Jesus and his disciples, his close followers, they pass through a suburb of Jerusalem, Bethphage at the foot of the, of the Mount of Olives, which is just east of Jerusalem. It's, it's a straight shot 
from Bethphage to the eastern gate of Jerusalem where the temple was located. So Jesus would have, and his disciple, they would have had their eyes on the temple. They're, they're cruising toward the temple. Not really cruising, you know, walking, right? Jesus tells two of the disciples, hey, go ahead, go ahead of the group, borrow a donkey, borrow a donkey's colt from someone in town. And if they ask why, why you need to borrow the donkey, tell them because the Lord needs them. Now, this isn't one of my main points, but don't miss the significance here. Don't miss this. Jesus plainly and clearly refers to himself as the Lord, the kurios, the supreme authority in the Greek. This isn't the first time he's referred to himself as God. It won't be the last time, but the next time you are in the break room at work or you're in the lunchroom at school and you overhear one of those misinformed conversations that Jesus never claimed to be God, you can use this text. You can turn here among many others and set the record straight. Jesus is in fact making the claim to supreme authority. He does so often enough that, again, as a quick aside, C.S. Lewis once commented that, you know, Jesus doesn't, he doesn't make any bones about it. When you read the Gospels, he's claiming to be deity. He's claiming to be God all throughout. And so Jesus is either an outright liar or he's an outright lunatic or he is Lord. We don't have the option of saying, oh, Jesus never said that about himself. Not true. We see it, we see it right here. Now, interestingly, When it comes to the owner of these two donkeys, uh, Jesus' lordship is a convincing enough uh, argument that they surrender the the, the donkeys to the disciples in verses 6 and 7. The disciples place their cloaks on them. Jesus sits on the colt as they continue toward um, Jerusalem. If we were to read the accounts of, of Mark and Luke and John, the others, they just say there was one donkey. Matthew says there were two donkeys. Oh, the whole Bible's false, right? No, no. I mean, I can have uh, two loaves of bread on a table and tell you, hey, there was a loaf of bread, and that's an entirely true statement. (laughs) There happened to be two in Matthew's telling of the story, and I don't doubt that if he were riding a colt, he would need the donkey's mother to calm him and ride into Jerusalem. I just want to show you how often these things, man, the world wants to debunk the Bible because there was a discrepancy of one or two donkeys, right? It's goodness gracious. There's two donkeys. And what I want to draw your attention to, these have all just been random asides because I'm feeling really loose today. Uh, What I want to draw your attention to for point one really are verses four and five. We're told that all of this took place, not randomly. You see that? All of this took place in order to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. Say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of the beast of burden. If you have a study Bible in front of you, you probably see that this quote is taken from the Old Testament book of Zechariah. Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. These very words were spoken to the people of Israel 500 years before Jesus' entry into Jerusalem. This that we just read here in verse 5, 
is a 500-year-old promise from God, a promise that a king, a humble king, would come to Zion. That is the city of God's dwelling, Jerusalem. He'd be riding on a donkey, not a war horse. Be riding on a donkey, that's significant, which means he is coming to make peace with his enemies, not war. And how interesting that this 500-year-old promise of a humble and peaceful king, it would have been spoken through Zechariah right after the Jews had been released from Babylonian exile. Recall with me the book of Esther. Remember? Right after Babylonian captivity, right after the Persian acquisition when King Darius defeats Nebuchadnezzar and he sets all of the Jews free, Esther's parents, they continued on to Persia, but Zechariah would have returned to war-torn Jerusalem And doing so, when they get to war-torn Jerusalem, the people of God would have had to have been wondering if there would ever come a king on this earth who wasn't drunk with power and hungry for war. What a comfort Zechariah 9.9 would have been to the Jews. That though they would never, as Jews, fully regain their independence in the city of Jerusalem, they could hold on to this promise that a humble king was coming to make peace. So if we're to take anything away from Matthew chapter 21, it's that Jesus is that king. We see in the triumphal entry that God is making good on a 500-year-old promise. In fact, it's a, it's a promise that's much older than that. It goes back to Isaiah and David and Abraham, and even the garden. Here's what we see in this promise coming to fruition. Our holy creator God is a God who will, mark the words, he will accomplish all that he has said he will accomplish. I am God, God says in Isaiah 46. There is none like me. I declare the end from the beginning, from ancient times, things not yet done. And I say this, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. Every promise we see in God's word, he will answer. Not just the big picture promises, he's got those but even smaller picture promises for this very moment. Do you know what comfort Matthew 21 gives me as Jesus is riding into the city, as the Jews are beginning to pick up their palm branches and we're told right here that all of this is taking place to fulfill a promise that God made a long time ago. That brings me such comfort for you, brother, or you, sister, like myself, if you are discouraged this morning, if your heart is heavy, if maybe you have experienced a very disappointing week, maybe you've been bruised by someone's harsh words, do you know that you can go to the God who always fulfills his promises and you can call upon him for 2 Corinthians chapter one that he has promised in your distress right now to give you comfort? to give you comfort, cry out to him 
and he will give you comfort. Do you believe that? Brothers or sisters, are you anxious this morning? Are you afraid? Are you facing a difficult situation at work or school that that has you worried? Are you losing sleep because something in your life feels completely out of control? Do you know that in Philippians chapter 4, God has promised to give you peace when you seek it from him? In Matthew 11, he promises to give you rest. Oh, that we would cry out to him to claim these promises that he has made. He is in the business of accomplishing all that he promised he would accomplish us. That even means these minute, real-time promises. Are you in need of an answer from God? Are you in need of some direction or wisdom or provision or help? In Matthew 6 and Philippians 4, God has promised to supply your need, to give you direction. Cry out to him today. Come to me after this gathering. I will pray with you. All too often, I do not take God up on the promises that he makes in his very word. We're reminded in verses one through seven that God fulfills specific promises with specific answers that he will accomplish all that he has said he will accomplish. Number two, though often not in the way we might expect. Now here's where I'm going with this. In verse eight, Jesus is nearing Jerusalem. The huge crowd of people begins to line the sides of the roads. You can just imagine it with me, right? They lay their cloaks down. This is a symbol of submission to a king. They wave palm branches, which is a gesture of victory. It's also a gesture of, of Jewish nationalism. They cry out, Hosanna, which means come and save us. Come and rescue us. Hosanna, verse nine, to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Now look, there seems to be no doubt in the crowd's mind that Jesus is the king who was promised through Zechariah and Isaiah and David and Abraham. And it's true. We have the rest of the biblical story. They are staring at the face of the Messiah. As they stare at him, their worship is loud, it's bold, it's triumphant. We've all been here. In the moments when God feels so close that we could touch him. In those moments of your life when you've sensed his nearness, you've sensed it, you've sensed his blessing, the moments when we see him tangibly working, is it not a true statement that in those moments, our worship is very confident. It's very bold. It's very triumphant. Our witness is loud and proud. Just like the Jews in verse 11, they're asked, what's all the commotion? Why are you so happy? Who is this you're celebrating? And they are ready to give an answer. So back to the illustration at the beginning of of this message. Aboard his parents' yacht, 
if Michael Bluth had been asked why he was in such a great mood on that boat, he would have said that the promise my dad made to me is gonna come to fruition today. The family company is as good as mine. Michael was confident and triumphant because he thought he knew exactly how his father's promise would play out. But when it didn't, when it didn't play out as expected, he disowned his father. Now look, not unlike Michael Bluth, the Jews in Matthew 21, church, they think they know exactly how God's promise to Zechariah is going to play out. The Jews at this moment, picture with me, put yourself into the Passion Week, right? This week in 33 AD in Jerusalem, the Jews are confident that Jesus is coming to Jerusalem to destroy God's enemies and to overthrow the Roman regime and to reinstate Israel's independence. They're basically crying, crown him, crown him, crown the promised king. But just a few days later, the moment that they begin to realize things aren't going according to their expectations. The moment they realize that Jesus hasn't come to kill God's enemies, but to be killed on behalf of God's enemies. The moment they realize Jesus isn't going to do what they want, what does the chant turn from, from crown him, crown him, to crucify him, crucify him? And we'll see this more during our Good Friday gathering. But man, my worship can be so conditional. So often, my worship of God, my worship toward Jesus is determined by the degree to which he is giving me what I think he should give me. So often my worship to Jesus is leashed to my expectations of him. Is this true of you? Could it be that in the moments of our greatest disappointments, could it be that in the moments when it seems that our expectations have been denied by God, when we don't get the job we're seeking, when we aren't healed from sickness, when we have to sell possessions just to make ends meet, when the person we've been praying for and praying for and praying for refuses to be reconciled or refuses the Lord could it be that in the moments of our greatest disappointments, when it seems that our expectations have been denied, could it be that it's not because our expectations are too lofty but too small? So back to the illustration, to round out the story, Michael Bluth's father had every intention of giving him the company. But what Michael was not aware of 
And it plays out as the season of this show plays out. What Michael was not aware of because of his limited perspective is that there was an embezzlement issue at the, at the center of the business. And his father knew it would cause more harm to his son uh, if he were to offer the company at that very moment. And so Michael's mother took the fall on his behalf. Now, look, I get that all, all illustrations, they unravel and they fall apart. I get that. I get that. I, and, but man, look, look back at this text and know because we know the rest of the story that God the Father has every intention of fulfilling his promise of Zechariah 9. He has every intention of fulfilling his promise to rescue this people. He will accomplish all that he has said he will accomplish, but not in the way the Jews most want. He will accomplish it in the way the Jews most need. And this is really, really good news for us this morning. Because if Jesus, after his triumphal entry, if he had killed his enemies to establish a temporal kingdom for his people, you and I would have no hope of being rescued from sin and death. But instead, because we know this story, Jesus was coming in triumphantly to be killed by his enemies in order to establish an eternal kingdom for his people, promising rescue from sin and death for all who trust him. I think probably the most sobering thing about this passage for me is that I would have been one of the Jews to come out to lay my cloak in the road, to pick up a palm branch and to worship my heart out because of expectations I had built up, taking a fraction of truth from the scripture, but then overlaying on top of it my ideal outcome from my perspective. And I would have cried, crown him. And I do in my own life, crown him. I see you, I see your hand, I see your, your blessing and your goodness. I worship you, it's the easiest. My, my worship is so conditional. But then the very moment that I begin to sense that in fact what Jesus is gonna do in my life is he's gonna bring me through a harder route My, my worship dries up. I mean, we have, we have thousands of people parading Jesus into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. Where are all of those people when he's being paraded out of the city to Golgotha? Gosh, that's me. And the hope that I have and the hope that you have, if you can resonate with any of this, is that even in my conditional worship, Jesus doesn't condemn me. 
even in my finite understanding, even throughout my week, that I've had one this week, angry with the Lord that he's allowing certain things to transpire, shaking my fist, wondering, where are you? Where is your blessing? Where is your direction? Where is your help? My worship drying up in the very moment. That's my conditional worship. Maybe you are like me, where the circumstances around are more of the catalyst for your your worship and trust. But I just praise God that Jesus doesn't condemn those of us with conditional worship. In fact, the very, the very thing that was being accomplished as he enters into Jerusalem is that the plan since the very beginning was that Jesus would become my very conditional worship. He would become our sin. He would become as a bona fide, fully wretched, ugly sinner. And he would be paraded back outside of the city And he would be hung on the cross as a sinner with all of my nastiness and conditionality intact. And he would die there as a punishment for all of this. But that's not the end of the story. And he he is risen. And he says, I have power over that. I have power over death and the grave. And now I call you without any strings attached to come freely and receive reconciliation. Be forgiven, be forgiven. I praise God that I am folded into his mercy because I am the Jews in Matthew chapter 21. Would you pray with me?